Welcome to Bloom and Ruin. It is time to begin. Breathe by Annalise van der Vin. I inhale the overpowering tang of salt, little grains of sand ensnared in my wind-tussled curls. I walk closer to the water, white foaming bubbles imprinting the outline of the previous wave on the sand. Reaching the edge, my feet are swallowed by golden mouths, grainy tongues sucking and slurping at my ankles. The tide comes in, cool water rushing over bare toes, releasing my feet, the current urging me out. I refuse, resist the pull, sand gnawing at my feet. The wind batters my back, whipping sand into my eyes. I shift, inching forward. The wave breaks, spraying clothes, face and hair. I stare up at the dark sky, blanketed in shimmering jewels. A thousand stars, a thousand possibilities. My gaze lowers to the horizon, a smudge of shadow in the distance. A wave forms, strong, powerful, towering. My stomach twists and I turn, ready to sprint back to shore, but I'm too far out. I'm engulfed by the wave, swept into its icy embrace. I struggle, arms and legs flailing as I try to discern up from down. I tumble, head over heels, only to be spat out onto shore. I clamber to my feet, coughing and spluttering. My skin is chafed raw, stinging with cuts, yet as the wave slams into shore, kissing the sand in passion, sliding its icy hands over my skin, I'm drawn towards it, to what lies beyond. My heart hammers, a thrill rising within me. You have to get out past the break. Straightening my spine, insides quaking, I glare at the swirling blackness before me. I wade out, again, watching a wave forming. I will not run. I start to swim, parting the water with my hands. I don't look back. I dive beneath the wave, allowing it to crash over me. A heavy weight presses into my back, holding me under before rolling away. I surface, gulping down air. A grin breaks across salty lips. Laughing, I float on my back, body illuminated by the gentle glow of the stars. Flight 280 by Josh Morgan It's Tuesday, somewhere past noon, as I sit waiting for my flight home. Beside me, thick grey fog wraps around the nearby window and begins to distort the view outside. Though not completely, just slightly. I glance out the window and see the outer world signalling back. It begins to feel really foreign to me. Looks like it's darkening. Like it's existing and moving in brief half-formed flashes. A lone jet that edges down a vast tarmac. Airport workers huddled together under a bright tarpaulin. Black and yellow birds flying beside heavy, expanding clouds. But then, this outer world vanishes entirely, falls to the fog. I see only a blanket of dark grey, and I'm transported back to the present moment, back to the sleepy, spacious lounge of Terminal 3. This part of the airport is brimming with passengers, busy employees, small shops, but it's not very bustling. Not very cheerful, the weather outside can't be helping. An unusual silence carries through the terminal, gives everything this dreary, distant undercurrent, 
and makes it seem like we're all only half existing here, between states, somewhere else. An automated voice journeys through the terminal, 20 minutes until boarding. Flight 280, 20 minutes until boarding. The thought of going back home fills me with dread and frenzy. I remind myself that this is not something that I'm choosing, rather it's something that is choosing me. Random unknown fate. More monotone voices carry through the airport, telling of other flights to come. Heavy luggage rolls across marble ground. Some passengers speed through the space, others just dwindle through, slowly, distantly. The unusual silence continues, grows. My gate is pretty calm and quiet, just a few people milling about, around 10 or so. A pilot stands by the front desk, talking to a female employee, both drinking coffee. I see a young father carrying a child in his arms, and a young mother sits nearby them, grim and seeming to be done with it all. There's an old guy in a tracksuit. He reeks of cigarettes and looks lost and angry, as though someone he knows just conned him. Perhaps they did. There's teenagers in hockey uniforms. They're quietly laughing about something. Two girls move closer to the gate, check their boarding passes, and then take a seat. Though, none of this quite catches my attention. Rather, it's this flat feeling, a sense of numbness that reaches me, an intense numbness that sets across the whole terminal, moves in lockstep with the unusual silence. I can sense it enlarging around us. I feel uncomfortable and disoriented, so I stand up. My mouth is overbearingly dry, and bottled water isn't doing the job, so I lift up my Saratoga travel bag, perch it to its side, unlock the handle, extending it outward. I set off to grab a drink from somewhere around the terminal, anywhere. I hurry onward, scraping my luggage across the ground, readjusting my earphones. I move by a cafe, pass a couple of other gates filled with waiting passengers. Then I move by some kind of donut joint. Up ahead, to my right, I spot the dusted brown sign of a gift shop. I step inside to find your usual airport shop. A counter, small rows of food and drink, tourist stuff like snow globes. But there's something else about the place that perplexes me. It's a tiny bare space painted in dull, unmemorable swashes of beige and brown. It feels vintage, but not in any way that would induce nostalgia. Instead, it just seems painfully old and dated. The couple who work behind the counter are old, white-haired, and for some odd reason, they both grin as they see me. It freaks me out, but I figure that maybe they just love their job, and I'm the first customer they've had in some time. Unsettled, I move toward a small fridge and eye a bottle of blue Gatorade. As I walk, I grab the black wayfarers that hang off of my shirt and place them on the top of my head. I don't know why I do this. I don't need to. I just do it. I remember a friend telling me that Noam Chomsky says when you raise your finger and point it up in the air, that the decision to do so was made in your brain two seconds before you thought you decided to do so. Now, I don't know what this means. I don't know what Chomsky was trying to say. I just know that I haven't ever forgotten hearing it, that it stays somewhere in my head, traversing through the spots up there. I grab the Gatorade and wander over to the counter, my footsteps piercing through the odd, dated environment. 
The old woman behind the counter just glares at me, still grinning. The old man too, though now he's pointing right at me. Uh, I mumble haltingly, passing him the Gatorade to scan. Uh, just this one, I say in a low, flat voice. The old guy scans it, still pointing. It's this strange, overwhelming moment. I don't know where to look, what to do, how to get out of this gift shop, how to get out of this weird moment that I'm suspended in. Hey, bud, I like your sunglasses, the old guy says in a quote, strained voice. He lowers his finger now, but this only slightly eases my tension. I like your sunglasses too, the old woman says. I don't know how to reply, so I just don't. I scan my card and wait for it to go through, pray that the machine will quickly accept that I can move the fuck away from whatever this dreadful interaction was. We said, we like your sunglasses, bud, the old man says firmly, with caution. The old woman furrows her brow. They seem offended. They like my sunglasses? The wayfarers perched on my head that they can barely even see? I don't know how to react, how to leave this moment. The old guy looks away now, disgruntled. He avoids eye contact. The old woman just blankly stares at me. My card still doesn't go through, is still loading. Somehow, I only just notice that they're wearing matching t-shirts, large overflowing black tees with an image of Prince Charles and Camilla printed on them. Neon blue text is sprawled across and reads, future king and queen, long may you run. What the fuck? It's the only thought I can muster at this moment. What the fuck? I can't stop looking at the matching shirts. Prince Charles and Camilla? The phrase future king and queen? Long may you run? It all confuses me. It all terrifies me. Um, thanks. I, uh, I like your shirts, I guess. I say to them, unconvincingly. They begin to smile again. I think that this whole time, they were just waiting for me to compliment their odd Charles and Camilla shirt. A quid pro quo kind of thing. Thanks, bud. They say in unison, visibly elated. A miracle arrives as my card finally scans, is finally accepted. I take the Gatorade and burst out of the shop, racing back to my seat at the gate, fleeing the depraved scene of the freakish old couple and their royal family merch. I return to my seat and the area is still unusually silent, still tainted with a rising numbness. My phone dings and a text appears. I see who it's from and just leave it place it back into my pocket. Then I think I see a famous footy player walk by, one of the ones who won a brown low. I can't be so sure though, because I don't really even follow footy. He walks by with a girl, and I peek over at them, blankly ignoring another announcement from the monotone voice. I turn away, sip some more Gatorade, check my phone again, but it loses signal. Then I spot a flight attendant walk by from an arriving flight. She looks sadder than the others in her group. I wonder what it is that's eating away at her, but realize I'll never find out. Nearby, the old guy in the tracksuit looks at me, like he might know me, studies me. Then something flashes in his eyes, perhaps the confirmation that he doesn't know me at all, because he instantly relaxes, turns away casually, 
nonchalantly, I become a stranger again. Sitting there in the numbness of the terminal, my mind starts to drift and I allow the thoughts to follow one after the other. I think back to this trip I took one time with some friends who were also travelers. We boarded a bus for a faraway city and moved down big dark roads brightened only by the brief flashes of multicolored light. I think about a girl I once met in Las Vegas, this really bright, really beautiful college student. I remember that her dark blonde hair was cut just past her shoulders and that she wore a fancy black dress. I remember that I just had to talk to her. She told me that she was the only child of lawyers from DC, high-powered Washington types, and that she spent half the year studying in the States and the other half at an international college in Paris. I told her how exciting in the life that must be, but she just shrugged and looked down, engulfed by a sense of unfulfillment and tinged with a semi-sadness. She said that it wasn't so bad, but that even still, she longed for something larger, that she dreamt of one day getting the grades to go to Harvard, because it was a place where the snow swallowed up the ancient brick buildings. Then I think about my own family some time ago, all of us gathered around a crowded dinner table. There's plates of roast chicken and corn, a pot of Caesar salad. We sit in complete silence. It's a few days into the new year. Forgotten Christmas decorations still adorn the house and the living room is only faintly lit by the dimmed light above us. I think somebody goes to say something, clears their throat maybe, but they stop, hesitate. In my mind, the way I picture it, the lights grow even dimmer. But then, all these memories start to blur, crash and fall one after the other, and sink somewhere into the numbness of the terminal. The monotone voice returns, announces that it's time to board Flight 280. The other people at the gate stand now, start to form lines. After a couple seconds, I get up, grab a hold of my bag, and just look around the place one last time. I spot the fogged window from before, only now, all the terminal windows are covered in the dark grey fog. I imagine all that exists outside the glass, beyond the fog, entire worlds I can't see, that I won't get to see. I pull out my passport and move toward the long winding line that forms by the gate. I halt briefly, then step forward into the line, disappearing. Kestrel's Kick-Butt Adventures by Davis Anderson Scene 1 A young man sits in a dishevelled apartment with a couch, a kitchen and two doors on the left and right of the stage. There are clothes, food wrappers and other household paraphernalia strewn across the floor. There is a genuine atmosphere of despondent carelessness throughout the apartment. There are three windows along the back wall. The evening sky outside them is orange, with ashen black clouds. Corey, the young man, sits on the tattered couch, facing away from the back wall, engrossed in a vigorous button-mashing gaming sesh. An explosion is heard from outside. Corey flinches, but does not turn around. Another explosion causes one of the doors to swing open, and the fire chief sprints in through it. He looks as if he's barely survived an explosion himself. 
He attempts to catch his breath, stops, then looks up at Corey. Time to suit up, son. Corey does not acknowledge the chief. <clears throat> he still does not respond. Earth to Corey. There's a crisis brewing out there, mate. Don't you think it's time we call in your special friend? You know, the one with the high-tech battlesuit? The heroic one? The one who'd lay down his life for this city? He continues playing. Don't make me turn on the smoke alarm. Corey pauses his game, sighs, and turns to look at the chief. Can you close the door? The chief doesn't budge. Corey rolls his eyes, gets up, and closes the door himself. He wants something done right. He sits back down on the couch and glances at the chief. He's busy, alright? Oh, really? Yeah. Corey resumes playing his game. Tell me, what exactly is he doing? He's fighting Dr. Eruption in Hawaii again. Is that right? Because it looks to me like he's sitting on his ass playing some stupid game while his city is going up in flames! So I think you better get going, Kestrel. Huh. Would you look at that? You managed to figure it out. What took you so long? I'm a fire chief, not a detective. But you hear enough bird puns and catch those sly winks you make? Pretty much anyone can piece it together. Corey puts down his controller, stands up from the couch, and raises his hands in the air triumphantly. Then congratulations! You figured it out! Yes, it is I, this city's super-powered protector, the avian champion, the one and only Kestrel! Welcome to my secret lair. I call it The Nest. It's full to the brim with state-of-the-art crime-fighting equipment, such as the Cushions of Righteousness. He picks up a couch cushion and wields it like a shield. The Nourishment Chamber. He dashes to the kitchen and spins around with his arms wide. The Pantry of Justice. He flings open a pantry door and pulls out a wooden spoon. The Spoon of Justice. He yanks the fridge door open and pulls out a carton of milk. The spoilt milk of justice. He takes a big swig, immediately retches and drops the carton to the floor. <clears throat> Tastes like... Civil liberty. Well, now that you know my secret, Chief, we'll be twice as effective. A new era of crime fighting begins today. He throws his head back and screams a cry of mock delight. When he looks back down, he is scowling. He grabs a packet of chips from the pantry, walks back to the couch, and slumps back down into it. I thought all superheroes were just orphans with access to unlimited resources. My parents live in Canberra and Centrelink pays for this apartment. Anyway, Chief, what are you doing here? There's no fire in here. I'm here to get you out there. So stop dawdling and go. I'm not going. The hell you aren't. You're our last line of defense, buddy. This city's under goddamn siege by costumed maniacs. No offense. None taken. This costume maniac gig you speak of was never going to pan out anyway. All I ever did was put on a show and indulge the basket cases I was fighting. I was doing more harm than good. So I'm taking a break from that toxic lifestyle. 
toxic lifestyle. Kid, this is your job. Then I quit. See yourself out, Chief. Corey goes back to his game. The Chief watches for a while, then sits down on the couch with him. Do you honestly think this is the best use of your time? Can you shush? Trying to beat the boss. Where's the suit? In the back. But don't bother trying it on. Why? You're sitting on a super-powered weapon but refusing to use it. So I'm taking matters into my own hands. The chief gets up and strides towards the other door. I meant, don't bother trying it on because it only works when I wear it. Are you serious? If I wasn't, I'd be out there right now, wouldn't I? Then put it on, damn it! There's no point. It doesn't work. Are you telling me the only thing standing between this town and total annihilation has simply stopped operating? That's pretty much the size of it, yeah. Have you at least tried putting it on? No, Chief. Because it's broken. Crippled. Out of order. Dead in the water. Finito. So stop asking. When did it stop working? When did what stop working? The suit. How long has it been since it fizzled out? Um, a while. How long's a while? Corey doesn't answer. July the 21st was a while ago. Corey freezes. You may not remember, but the night I died was pretty hard to forget. I didn't forget. Then why are you holed up in here, letting even more people be killed? Listen to me, Chief. I'm done. I am so done. The hours I've wasted, the glass I've shattered, the bones I've broken for this job you speak of have all been for nothing. What's the payoff? For every goon I've thrown in a cell, two more just waltz right on out. How many more punches do I have to throw before the message gets through? Or do I have to mount the decapitated head of my arch nemesis on a stake in front of Town Hall? The chief stares disapprovingly. Don't look at me like that. I didn't... It was a joke. A bad joke, yeah, but... <sighs> While it's something I would never do, it feels like the only thing that's left... I don't think killing my enemies is right, but how else am I meant to stop them from coming back? See, this was the problem I faced every time I broke some costume thug's nose. These were the questions I was asking when I was defusing zero hours time bombs. This was the crisis I was facing every night until I realised that the common denominator for all these issues was me. I'm the problem. By giving these bedazzled lunatics a figure to rally against, I was harming this city by fighting back and joining the charade. Look, all of my supervillains have two goals. Kill me and take over the world. By removing myself from the picture, robbing them of one of their goals, I removed, like, the fire in their bellies, you know? And now, since they no longer have something to fight, they've lost all interest in taking over the world because it's too easy. Conflict is the engine of drama, and we both know how dramatic supervillains can get. So, if you remove the hero, you remove the conflict. Then you remove the drama, and then the villain removes themselves. 
It's as simple as that. Silence. The chief sits down on the couch and stares out the window at the raging inferno below. End of part one. Ballad for a One Night Stand by Mary DePiazzi. My list isn't a long one. Eyes crinkle when you smile. Tell me I'm lovely. Cut that late night tension with that damn jawline. Hold me close when you're sleeping. I want that dumb 3am teenage butterfly feeling. I want you to brush my hair out of my eyes in the streetlights in summer and tell me how pretty I look. How you'd rather see my face than a sunset. I relish how breakable I become in your arms. My heart now a piece of delicate china. Be careful. Tell me the things that I hate about myself are the ones that are my most beautiful. All I ask is that you help calm the oceans of uncertainty in my mind that have been storms for as long as I can remember. It feels like I've already known you for a lifetime. Known you before somehow. These feelings don't come this easily. It's supposed to take your whole life. Are we too young? Is this too much? Am I too much? You reach deep into my hesitation, take my hand and pull me back into your stillness. Cradle my swirling mind with your knowing hands. Kiss me. Your eyes reading my insecurities like a book you've loved your whole life, gently skimming the pages and breathing in the familiarity. The scent of our new chapters intoxicating and warm like a freshly brewed morning coffee. But, like all the others, I know you're leaving in the morning. It is time to end. Thank you to our writers and thank you to our listeners. This has been Blue and Ruin. We will return soon.